Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Like searching for needles in a haystack, searching for meteorites on Earth is not an easy feat. How about searching for those meteorites while in the frigid wasteland of Antarctica? Well, that's what my guest today did this past winter. Dr. Julianne Gross is an associate professor at Rutgers University, and she studies the formation and evolution of the planets in our solar system. What do meteorites in the Antarctic have to do with her research? We are going to find out about that, plus what living in the true frozen tundra is like. Julianne, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. You're very welcome. I'm, I'm glad I'm here. Uh, well, it's, it's, you know, it's, you know, we like to go all over the place with this podcast. It's called Weather Geeks. But um, for those that listen on the regular, if you're listening in for the first time, we, we go into every nook and cranny, if it's any way related to weather, climate, science, atmospheric sciences. And this is one of those shows today. Let me give you a little bit of Julianne's background before I ask her the question that I ask every Weather Geeks guest. And I'll give you a little uh, heads up because I'm going to ask you. How did you get into space studies and geology? Was it something as a kid, some experience? But before I do that, let me just give you some of her background. She's an associate professor and senator at Rutgers University's <laughs> Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences. I'll have to find out what that means because it's in my production notes. Uh, she's an adjunct pr professor at the City University of New York's The Graduate Center, a research associate at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. She received her PhD in geosciences and her master's in meteorolo meteorology for Ruhr University of Bochum or Bochum, Germany. And I'll have to get my 16-year-old daughter to help me pronounce that because she takes German. So anything I got wrong, please correct me. But um, first of all, How'd you get into space studies and, and geology? This is a question I always ask our weather guests because it's usually some experience as a kid. Yeah, um, so I think I've always been really curious about how things work uh, in general. Um, like when I was, when I was a, a toddler, I like to take things apart, and, you know, figure out how they work. Um, I've always been really curious about nature and how nature works in general. And so growing up, um, I wanted to become an astronaut or a farmer. Those were my, my two big dreams. Um, and uh, yeah, so I ended up in geology because it is basically the study of how Earth works and other planets. And, you know, how I was curious about how, how it happens that you are on this like big rocky planet and, and Earth creates life, but other planets don't. Um, and so that's how I got into geology and specifically mineralogy, like what can the minerals in rocks tell us about the formation of planets. And so I did my PhD uh, and my master's in Germany because I'm from Germany. So um, I grew up there and I studied Earth for a while. And then um, I sort of remembered that I always wanted to become an astronaut and, you know, I really love space. And as a kid, I just loved looking in the stars, astronomy, you know, learning about all of this. And so then there was a position that opened up in the Lunar and Planetary Institute in Houston, Texas, with conjunction of NASA um, for a postdoc position. 
studying meteorites from the moon. Um, and I was like, you know what? I have nothing to lose. I'm just going to apply. I had never had a single planetary class in my entire life. So I knew nothing. But I figured, you know, um, what the heck? I'm just going to try it. And so they invited me for an interview. So then I was like, all right, you know, I'm just going to go have fun. They fly you over there for the interview. And I was like, oh, it's a good, good way for me to practice English and give presentations. <laughs> yeah. So I did. Um, so I presented my PhD work on subduction zones on Earth. And they must have really liked it because they hired me. And so I switched fields and I basically had to start at zero again. I had to learn, you know, all this stuff about planetary science from, from scratch, new. Um, but I really loved it. I love looking at these rocks that were returned to Earth either by humans through the Apollo mission or by nature in the form of meteorites and trying to figure out how planet altering processes have shaped this corner of our solar system. Uh, and, and, and in extent, you know, we learn from these rocks what Earth was look like very, very early on in its history. Um, Earth is a really active planet um, with plate tectonics, weather, as you know, that um, breaks apart rocks, turns them into soil and, and sediments that get transported to the oceans, eventually that gets subducted back, brought into the interior where the rocks melt again. So Earth recycles all these rocks. And every time a rock gets recycled, it resets its internal clock and it resets all this internal information that it had stored. So all the old geologic evidence that we could have used to figure out what Earth was really like in its early history or maybe where life came from, all this old geologic evidence has been reset and turned into something new. So in order to learn about the early solar system history and how the Earth moon system formed and what was it like, we need to find a place that hasn't changed much since its formation. And that is the moon. Um, they share a common history, they share a formation history. And, um, and so looking at these rocks that are billions of years old, you know, we can try to figure out not only how planets in general form, how crust forms, but also how Earth formed and what was it like in early in its early history. Yeah, and I think I think that's a really good way to put it because I think you know people get weather that affects them every day. We just had the tropical storm affecting much of the East Coast. I often find that uh, uh, people don't make the connections into why we're studying planetary bodies and science and some of the things that, uh, this is just my experience as a scientist also, when people sort of see research and development that doesn't, to their perspective, affect their sort of immediate lives. They always, well, why are you doing that? But I think you did a nice job of framing that. Why I just thought about this. Uh, this show is certainly not going to do anything for those people that occasionally ask meteorologists if we study meteors and meteorites, because that's something that I know for the meteorology uh, folks out there, there, you've gotten that question a time or two whenever there are meteor showers and things, because meteorology certainly has the word meteor in it, but, um, you yeah. know, kind of derives from this old hydrometeor, hydrometeors of these um, water constituents in the atmosphere. And it has a history that I actually wrote about in a Forbes article several years ago on the origin of why we are called meteorologists and study weather. But you mentioned, Julianne, I'm talking with Dr. Julianne Gross from Rutgers University, but you mentioned that you are not in New Jersey right now. You are in Texas. Tell us a little bit about what you're up to there. Yeah, so currently I'm on leave from Rutgers. Um, I'm in Texas, in Houston, and I've become the deputy curator for the Apollo sample collection with NASA. So 
NASA is basically buying my time from Rutgers for about two years. Um, so I can help curate uh, the Apollo collection and the samples and preserve the samples and advertise them to the community. Um, and right now we have, you know, we're getting ready for Artemis, for the Artemis mission. And we have uh, the ANGSA program. Um, I, I think for, for the folks, this is a crowd that might be listening to the Weather Geek that has no idea what Artemis is, because can you give us a quick 30-second oh, of what that is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everybody knows the Apollo missions, right, uh, which went to the moon to return, uh, to, to bring back samples. And so Artemis is a return to the moon mission, uh, which is bringing the first woman and the next man to the moon, ideally by 2024. So we're, we're, and Artemis is the sister in, in the Greek mythology of Apollo. Um, and so it was very fitting for NASA to, to name this mission Artemis. Um, and we are trying very hard to get ready for that mission. Um, we're currently I'm helping uh, to develop some of the tools or the materials that the tools um, are made from that the astronauts will use to pick up samples because we have to be very careful so that those samples don't get contaminated um, with material from Earth, right? Um, and then um, I'm also working and trying to help curate the Apollo samples themselves because they are still of interest for the scientific community um, to request these samples. Anybody in the world can request Apollo samples to study. And so uh, my job as the deputy curator is to help the, the Apollo sample curator um, to get ready for that, to allocate these samples, to preserve these samples, you know, and make sure everything is safe um, and such, such as, as that. Yeah, so let's um, just Weather Geeks uh, listeners, it really is an indication of the type of guests that we get on this podcast when NASA is coming to Dr. Gross and buying her time for two years. That tells you she's at the top of her game. So shout out to Dr. Julianne Gross for, for that. Now, now I want to kind of circle back to your own areas of research. Uh, what are the main planets that you specifically are interested in researching? I know you've talked a lot about your work with the moon and I know you've done some work with Mars. Tell us a little bit about just sort of your portfolio of research. Yeah, so I'm mostly interested in differentiated planetary bodies, which means, um, those are bodies that, that have become a planet. So they have a core, they have a mantle, they have a crust. So they have layers, right? Differentiation is a fancy word for separation based on density. All the heavy stuff is in the center and all the light stuff is on the outside. So I look at uh, rocks from the moon um, to figure out how planet altering processes work, but I also look at rocks from Mars. And those are the rocks that have been delivered to us in na with nature as meteorites. Um, and you know we know that Mars at some point had liquid water flowing and, and now it's a desert, it's bone dry. And so what happened? Like what happened in its past? There was a giant climate change. And the question is, why did that happen? And can this happen to earth, right? And so what I'm really interested in is the volatile budget of these Martian rocks, um, like how much water is in there. So some minerals, can only form when there's water present. And then they incorporate this water or these volatiles into their, their structure. And so I analyze these rocks um, and then calculate how much water was in the melt from which they originated. And then I also need to find out whether they originated from deep within Mars or whether they um, were extruded by a volcano and then cooled on the surface. That all gives us information about how Mars formed and what the volatile budget was in the past and what it still could be today. 
And so that, that's what I'm really interested in. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Julianne Gross from Rutgers. And we're talking about, or will be shortly, the Antarctic search for meteorites. And yeah, you got to keep listening to see where we're going with that. Uh, But before we do that, I am going to attempt to do this. Because the technique that you use to study planetary samples is quite the mouthful. It's, it really is. And let me see if I can get most of it correct. You use the electron probe microanalyzer to scanning electron microscope to laser ablation inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry. L-A-I-C-P-M-S. What the heck? Can you tell us a little bit about what each of that means? Uh, interpret that at the sort of eighth grade level for us. Yeah, of course. Um, so as I've said before, rocks are made from minerals. And these minerals, when they form, they record the condition and sort of the environment um, from which they formed. So they can um, store the information of at what depth in the planet they formed, what the composition of that melt was like, whether it was really iron rich or had rare earth elements, which on earth is important for mining, you know, like these elements. Um, And so all of this gets stored in the mineral. So these instruments help me figure out what the chemistry of these minerals are. So my job basically is that of a detective. You can think of it as a space detective. And my crime scenes, so to speak, are billions of years old. And the witness that I have are the rocks that came come from that era. And obviously, I can't ask it questions, right? So these instruments help me ask and answer the questions that I have. Um, each instrument is good for a different set of elements from the periodic table at different levels of precision. So I can look at the chemistry in weight percent or I can look at the chemistry in parts per million. Uh, So really, really, really small um, amounts. And then some of the instruments I use for taking pictures. So I can zoom into the minerals and into the rock to like micron micron size level, which means one one thousandth of a millimeter. So, So smaller than a dust grain. Uh, and you can't really see that with naked eye. So you have to have these instruments where you can really zoom in. And then I can see structures. Um, I can t- see textures within the minerals or structures within the rock. And all of that gives me clues of how this rock formed and how the minerals formed. And the chemistry gives me answers 
to the conditions of their formation. And then I can use that chemistry to back calculate, for example, on Mars, how much water there was in the interior or how much water there still is. Some of these instruments give me answers about how old the rock is. Um, so I can day age date the rock. And then with that, I can put a date on the event from which the rock formed. Let's say it formed in a volcano, right? If I know the age of the volcano, then I know, or the age of the rock, I know the age of the volcano when it was active. And therefore I know at what time Mars or the moon was still active in its history. And then it gives me more clues about the interior, you know, how warm is it? Is there still melt and stuff like that? So these instruments basically help me um, answer the questions that I have or the questions that I'm asking these really billion year old witnesses that, you know, have no other way of communicating with me. Yeah. And I thought you did an amazing job <laughs> interpreting that. And I'm sure you've had to do it quite a few times. Uh, that was a mouthful, I will have to say. But let's let's now pivot. Let's pivot now. This is Weather Geeks. And I think people that listen to Weather Geeks and we, we've talked about Antarctic climate and climate change and those types of things. So I think the Antarctic is one of those places that really is fascinating to people in general. I mean, yeah. it's just one of these places that most people that will never venture to. Um, but you've, I guess, been there. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about this Antarctic Search for Meteorites program or ANSMET. First of all, how did you hear about this program and when's the last time you've been in Antarctica? And tell us about your experiences there. Yeah. So, um, so when I switched fields and became a planetary scientist working with these meteorites, I was very curious about where we find them. Um, and you can find them in desert environments, right? Like if you want to find a meteorite, then uh, you want to make sure it's in a pristine condition. So that means it hasn't rained on a lot or a cow stepped on it or whatever, right? Meteorites fall all over the earth at all times. If they, you know, most of them land in the ocean and then they're lost. Or if they land somewhere here in the United States, but nobody sees it, they land in a field and then they just sit there and eventually they weather away. So our best chances to find these meteorites are in deserts. We have two types of deserts on our planet, and those are hot deserts, like the Sahara, Northwest Africa, or cold deserts, and that's Antarctica. Um, so every can, year... Can you explain, before you continue, yeah. because again, I understand exactly what you're talking about, uh -huh. but I think there's a perception among people, because you know people aren't necessarily as science attentive as we are. I think people have this perception of deserts as hot, dry places only. So can you explain why Antarctica would be considered a desert? Yeah, so Antarctica, even though it is covered by like four kilometers of ice, it's the coldest place on Earth, but it's also the driest place on Earth. Um, and so deserts are basically extremely dry places that uh, where the weather doesn't change much. So there's not, not much participation. And that can be cold or hot. So it's, it's two types. And when you have rocks in those environments, they don't change much. So if they, if they you know, land there or even rocks from earth, they sit there for like millions of years without changing much just because there's no participation. They usually also has very little life. Um, in hot deserts, there's a lot more. In cold deserts in Antarctica, there's very little. So it's even better for us um, to find meteorites there because they're held more pristine in, uh, than in hot deserts. Yeah, tell us a little bit. So I, I know that there was a recent winter campaign and let's, let's calibrate our minds here. Uh, remember in Antarctica, it's in the Southern hemisphere. So uh, I guess Austro 
April winter would essentially be our boreal summer. So the summer here in the Northern Hemisphere, just to kind of calibrate folks. So it's the middle of the summer here in Georgia where I am right now, but I I would imagine it's the middle of the winter there in Antarctica right now. So not not a lot of folks, not a lot lot is going on. It's my understanding that much of the activity goes on down there in the summertime because of the lighting. So just tell us about life there. The last time you were there, which I guess was the last winter and, and was that winter campaign successful in finding me? Yeah, yeah. So I was actually there in 2017 to 18. Okay. That's when I was picked. So I applied for the program um, and then I was picked and um, for the field season 2017 to 18. Um, oh, and so we start in November um, because that's the beginning of the summer season in Antarctica. And that means the sun never sets, right? You don't want to go in their winter time because it's 24 hour dark and you really can't see anything. If you can't see anything, you can't find meteorites. Um, and so when we went there um, in November, uh, you go to the McMurdo Station, which is the U.S. station in Antarctica on the coast. Um, and then we get flown there uh, and then we receive a lot of training first. And that is survival training, um, extreme weather training, stuff like that. Um, and then once you received all your training, about I want to say I think we were in McMurdo for about 10 days and then they fly you out uh, onto onto the top of the continent basically in the middle of nowhere and there's nothing there except ice and snow uh, nothing is alive uh, so you're the only living being so there's no animals I often get that that question whether they're animals so there are no animals in Antarctica except on the coast but if you go inland there's nothing there. It's too cold. No animals, no bacteria, nothing, nothing. And so you and your team, those are, you know, you're the only living beings in that place. And Give then, us a sense of you, because I, I think yeah. that's an interesting point, because I think people are familiar with sort of the penguins and the emperor, emperor penguin, I guess their empire, emperor penguins emperor, and so yeah. forth. Yes. And, but they are along the coast. You're, mm-hmm. you're well inland. And as I understand, I've never been. But as I understand, once you get well inland on the continent, one, it's more elevated and it's this extreme cold. Give us a sense of just how cold, even even there in what would be considered their summer. Yeah. So, um, yes, it is. It is extreme cold. So most of the time when we were there on really bad days, the temperature dropped to minus 60 um, with the wind chill. And those are really dangerous days. And so you don't really leave your tent. Um, most days when the weather is like balmy and nice and warm, it's somewhere between minus 20 and minus 40. <laughs> um, so you live in these, you know, tiny tents. You, you are at equivalent of about 11,000 um, feet. So it's really, really high up. Um, it's very hard for your body. You know, if you, if you try to run, you're out of breath very, very quickly. Um, so you have to be a little careful is extremely dry, as I said before. So it feels a little bit like you're in this like icy cold desiccator where Antarctica is just sucking the water out of your body. And so you need to constantly hydrate, which, you know, is a problem when you're in a place that is like minus 40 because water tends to freeze. And so you need to try and like find a way where you can keep the water liquid long enough so you can drink it. Um, These are like all these little things that you sort of battle when you're there for like six to eight weeks on the deep field with with nobody else around right well, and how so, did you do it how do you keep the water what do you do yeah so um so we make our own water um so you live in these tiny tents these are two people tents 
And so it's like eight by eight feet. That's all the space you have for two people. And inside the tent, so you have your sleeping bag inside the tent, and then you have a little camping cooker. And so you take, you have to hack the ice and then fill up your kettle and then turn on your little camping stove and then melt the ice to make liquid water. Um, turns out that's a lot of work. And so you have to produce enough water for two people to drink throughout the day. And so we have these big thermos canisters. So you fill the hot water in there and you can take it with you when you go on a search. And usually it keeps the water liquid for about 24 to 48 hours. When you, when it, and when you fill it in hot, if you fill it in cold, that's a, that's a different problem. You want to avoid that that water freezes because once it's frozen in your thermos, you will never get it out again. Mm. Uh, and then you don't have a canister to carry water and then and it's, it's a problem. Um, so yeah, so you have these thermoses that, that you pack at night. Um, you fill bottles with hot water and you stuff it in your sleeping bag that will warm you a little bit. And then your body heat will also keep the water liquid. Um, so yeah, so that, that water production is a, is a big problem. Not drinking enough is a big problem there. You know, um, you obviously don't have bathrooms or anything, no showers, you know, that doesn't work there, obviously. So that one of the big adventurous parts of this, this journey was like creating enough water and keeping it liquid somehow and water becomes one of your or liquid water becomes your precious commodity there it's like one of the the most precious things you have and you don't waste it so we didn't we didn't wash dishes for example we just wipe them clean because you don't want to waste your water right yeah, if yeah. you make pasta for example then you use the water uh, and you drink it later yeah. you know uh, you don't you don't you really like every drop of water is like is precious so this is, a, yeah, so this is a really sort of interesting experiment in water sustainability. When we talk about water scarcity here and sort of the sort of across the globe, I think in that environment, you really are practicing limited water supply and sort of reuse and sustainability. So that's really interesting. Now, um, let, let's, let me take a break and then we'll come back and pick up the discussion. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, having a fascinating conversation with Dr. Julianne Gross from Rutgers Unit. And we're talking about Antarctic searches for meteorites. And just as a reminder, meteorologists study the weather and climate, uh, not meteors and meteorites. Uh, but I, I understand that, you know, many meteorologists actually get that question quite a bit. But this is actually someone that studies meteorites. And so really fascinating to talk to her. Now, you're in, you're in, you're living in Antarctica, you're 11,000 feet, you're well inland, it's minus 20 to minus 60 degrees, uh, hostile environment, extreme environment, and this is in their summertime. Um, 
okay, what happens if you find meteorites? What, what happens next? What do you put them? How do you care for them and so forth until you get them back to a place where you can study them safely? Yeah, so what we do is, um, so like sort of like the daily routine is, so you get up at seven, you know, you make, you make your water, um, you eat, you know, you gotta eat a lot in Antarctica just to, just to keep warm and not lose weight. Um, and then you start to get dressed which takes about 20 minutes um, and you end up with about eight layers and I weigh the clothes later and there's about 22 pounds of clothing that you're wearing wow. just so you're not cold. And, and honestly, you're still cold. There are parts of your body that are always cold. Um, and then you go to the tent that has a bucket in, which is the bathroom. So you do your business in the bucket, um, which you know means you need to undress and then redress again. So it all, everything takes quite a while and it's, it's a lot of effort. And so at around nine o'clock, um, 15 minutes before that, you warm up your skidoo. At nine o'clock, you hop on your skidoo. And then the team goes out and drives to these really old blue ice fields. And so those are the ice fields that, are, that don't have any snow covering on it. Um, and, and then you go into a search pattern and you basically systematically search these blue ices. Um, so you're on your, on your own for, you know, and then you just go down a lane, basically an imaginary lane. And you rake the ice field that way. And you can think of the ice as like a conveyor belt. Um, so meteorites land on this ice and they have over billions and you know millions of years. And think of it as a cake. So if you have chocolate chips in a cake, some chocolate chips will be at the surface, somewhere will be the interior of the cake, and some will be at the bottom of the cake. Now, if you start slicing the cake from the top, right, you will expose chocolate chips at different levels in the cake if you continue to slice, right? And that's similar with the ice. And so the meteorites are frozen at different levels in the ice. So ice flows very, very slowly from the center of the continent towards the coast. But if the ice encounters an obstacle, like a mountain range, so there's the big trans-Antarctic mountain range that goes through Antarctica. If the ice encounters that mountain range, the ice sort of gets pushed up against the mountains and the wind is so dry, it ablates the ice. It, you know, basically evaporates the ice. And so then the ice starts keep pushing up, right? And so you, this way, you expose the meteorites at different levels, and they all concentrate then on the surface. And so what you have to do is then just literally just go find these extremely old ice fields where the ice is starting to sublimate because it is kind of stalled against some of these mountains, and then you just have to go and like recover these meteorites. And so we go in a search pattern where we're all in one line and then we all drive forward sort of at the same speed. And everybody looks left and right in front of you and behind you to find these meteorites that are sitting on the ice. Um, if they're not snow covered, you know, it's usually black rocks sitting on blue ice. It's, it's easy to see. There are, of course, also earth rocks because you have some of from the mountains that fall down. Right. And so every time you see a rock, you stop, you go check it, whether it's from Earth, whether it's not. And then when and what, find, what is the distinguishing factor between determining whether it's an earth rock or a meteorite? What, yeah, I mean, how do you know immediately? Yeah, that's a good question. So when meteorites um, fall, so when, they, when, when you have a meteorite that goes through the atmosphere, it heats up, it gets extremely hot. So the outside melts um, and, and it creates this like black glassy crust and we call this a fusion crust. Um, and so the rock doesn't have any sharp corners because they all got rounded through the entry, uh, through the atmosphere. And so when it lands, it has this like partially shiny glassy crust 
no no sharp edges, everything is rounded. And usually the crust breaks open by impact. And so part of the crust is missing and you can see on the inside interior and the interior is very different from the glassy shiny outside crust. And that's how you how you can identify them. If you're not sure, sometimes we have magnets and we can like hold a magnet to it. Some, some rocks are magnetic, not all meteorites are, but some are. Um, and so those are just some criteria. Usually when you see all these earthworks there and you see a rock that is very different from all the earthworks, then that is most likely a meteorite. Um, so it's also a little bit looking at what is different in a field of all the same, you know, find the one that's not the same kind of like game. Um, and then when you think you have one, you look at it very carefully. Then if you are sure you found a meteorite, um, you call your team because you're kind of far away and you can't communicate. So you communicate through signals, hand signals or arm signals. And so you stand and you wave until they see you. And then everybody comes back to your spot. Um, we have field notes. So then we describe the rock where it was found. We take the coordinates where it was found. Um, a meteorite gets a number. And then we take pictures of it with the number um, of all different angles. And then you pick it up with these um, sterilized tongs. Um, and it gets placed into a sterilized Teflon bag. Um, and then we put in a different bag the number that comes on top of it so they don't touch. Um, and then you you tape it close and then it gets stored inside the skidoo. Um, it will still, you know, it, the skidoo is cold, so it, it stays frozen. And so you continue through the day like this for like eight to nine hours. And then you go back to camp. Um, and then you do an inventory so you make sure that all the numbers you recorded and all the meteorites are still there. You know, you double check that the numbers you wrote in the field book are the same numbers from, from those in the bags. And then you store the recovered meteorites in a big box that just sits out on the, on the ice. Um, and so all the meteorites get stored frozen, they never unfreeze. And later on, after, you know, your six to eight weeks in the deep field, um, little twin otter planes come to, you know, or hopefully come to pick you back up. Um, and so the rocks in the big, in the big boxes, they get brought back to McMurder Station, just like us. They will continue to stay frozen. So they just stay outside. And eventually there's a big um, supply ship that comes once a year that supplies McMurder Station with all the food and everything, the fuel that they need. Um, and then on the return, they return you know, the garbage and everything, and, and they return the science equipment. And so the meteorites go on that boat. Um, eventually, they make their way back to the U.S. Um, during that process, they continue to stay frozen. Once they're back in the U.S., they get shipped to NASA JC, where I am right now. Um, and then, again, in a frozen state. And so they usually, so the field team usually comes back home in in you know, end of January, beginning of February, and the meteorites usually arrive a couple of months later, you know, maybe April or something like that. And then they, be, they are being brought into the meteorite lab um, and very carefully they're being placed in the freezer there so that they, you know, kept frozen at all times. And then very, very carefully they get taken out and they get unfrozen in these big cabinets um, that dry them out. And um, we don't want the meteorites to unfreeze and create sort of like liquid water that then can leach out elements. So we want to make sure that the environment is extremely dry and you very gradually, very carefully dry them out. And then they get classified. Um, 
And that work is shared between NASA JC and the, Smithos the Smithsonian um, Museum. Uh, and then once they're classified, it gets um, published in a newsletter that comes out, I think twice a year, which lists all the new meteorites from, from the season. Um, Do you have a place where people can go and, um, and see that newsletter? Is there a website or a social oh, media? Yeah, there is, yeah. If you search um, um, the, the meteorite newsletter, in Google, you, you'll find it. Okay, yeah, good. It's publicly yeah. available. I and think so some people any, are going to be interested in finding it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. If you just Google that, um, it's, it's right there. And um, and then any researcher on this world can apply or can write a proposal to request some of these, these meteorites. And usually there um, is a team of uh, people who twice a year look over these proposals and then um, and then say, yep, this is a good idea. That person should get should get a meteorite. So they advise NASA whether or not the research idea is a good idea, um, and it, it you know would be worth studying. So if you have a good research idea, you can write a proposal, request these meteorites, and then study them. So even though I was part of the the field team in 1718, you know we found uh, 263 meteorites. Um, but if I want to study those meteorites that I recovered or helped to recover, I will have to write a proposal just like anybody else. And I have to stand in line just like anybody else. So I don't get preferential treatment because not everybody can go to Antarctica, right? Like not everybody is physically able to do so or because of their, their you know, home environment or whatever. Um, and so it would be really unfair um, if you get selected and then you would get preferential treatment. And so... And that, you know, that's not really why we do this. You know, we, we want to help the community, the scientific community to do this, especially people who are not, who can't go or haven't been selected yet. Um, and so it's not something you do for, for your own good, but more like for the greater good um, of the scientific community. And I will definitely request some of those samples um, at some point and then study them because, you know, that's the fun part about this whole project. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this is amazing. I, I, I this has been so fascinating that we've almost run out of time, and I'm I really <laughs> hate it because this, I mean, I hope the listeners have been so intrigued. I mean, I just I just was sitting here in awe as I listened to Dr. Rose talk about what what goes on because let's face it, none of us, most of us, probably won't ever one go to Antarctica, and not if if we do go, you're probably going to be on the coastal and you know, realm you're not going to go deep into the ice there into the, into the continent where it really is a different world uh, as you've heard basically no life so i really appreciate that um, before i let you go i have to do one thing and then i want to come back if you have any websites or social media sites you want to promote but before we do that it's time for the geek of the week we like to highlight a scientist superstar a great geologist or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast this episode's Geek of the Week is Carly Nicholson. She is a scientist, environmental advocate, brand guru, and public sector consultant at Grant Thornton in Washington, D.C. She has many qualifications for being our Geek of the Week, including being a storm spotter, launching weather balloons, and bringing a weather stem station to her college at the University of Indianapolis. Shout out to Ed Mansouri from Weather Stem. Thank you for being so active in our community, Carly. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages on Facebook and Twitter. Now, Dr. Gross, where can people find out more about you, either on the web or social media? Uh, yeah, so on the web, if you go to Rutgers, um, you know, I have, I have my profile there in the Earth and Planetary Science Department. 
Um, if you just Google my name and like, you know, Juliana Gross, meteorites or something like that there uh, I have been given a couple talks um, lately that all have been recorded this, so they should be on YouTube the Lunar and Planetary Institute runs a cosmic exploration series and I was invited last year um, so I gave a, a a lecture you know public lecture there that has been recorded about Apollo samples and how they connect our past and our future with Artemis and so if people are interested in that they can that's on YouTube as well. So you can, you can look it up there. Um, Do you have yeah, a Twitter I, site? I don't have Twitter. Oh, yeah. No, I think you're tailored <laughs> Twitter. Wow. You're so, so interesting in terms of the things you do. I, 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 as, as a fellow colleague in scientists, I encourage it because I'd love to follow you. So. Yeah, no, I, I, I think, yeah, more and more people keep telling me I should, I should have Twitter. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm at the point where maybe I'll, I'll try it out. It's just sometimes, you know, with work and like doing research, Sometimes these social media will suck you in for hours and then you yeah. don't get anything else done. But but yeah, I'm I'm learning yeah. that it is a good I'm I'm process. going to I I I do a lot of research and write a lot of grants and papers, but I'm active on Twitter I, and I'm hoping you'll get on because I, I would just love to follow you. <laughs> and by the way, I wrote an article in Forbes about why scientists need to be on Twitter. So Google it oh. and maybe it'll give you the nudge you need because it talks about some of the pitfalls, but also really a lot of the positives. But uh, we can save that for a different conversation. It's been such a pleasure. <laughs> having, and that's why I'm so interested in following you. I've just I've been very, very sort of fascinated by what you've shared. Um, so thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. You are very welcome. It was my pleasure. I had a lot of fun. Thank you. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia and keep listening. And we've got a lot of really great shows ahead of you and uh, ahead of us, I should say. And we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks. Weather Geeks.